Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And today's guest is a consulting psychologist, leadership coach, writer, and speaker. Her consulting firm committed to helping leaders lead teams and navigate large, complex organizations. She is a senior organizational development psychologist for the Department of Veteran Affairs, and she previously supported military service members and veterans in transition after deployment or after significant traumatic experiences with PTSD. That part is obviously near and dear to my heart, being a veteran, and with my brothers, my father, my son having 108 years of military service, this stuff is important. My brother spent two tours in Vietnam, so having this kind of help nowadays makes a big difference and and warms my heart. She helps healthcare providers and healthcare leaders with self-care burnout and the pitfalls they face every day, which I think is a big deal today now with what's going on. She's authored over 40 publications and delivered over 50 scientific and educational presentations on topics related to building capacity for managing transitional and transformational experiences. She has a special passion for helping women gain the influence, power, leadership, and resiliency skills needed in today's diverse, complex, and ever-changing workplace. She's written about this in her new book, Millennial's Guide to Workplace Politics. She's an associate professor at Duke University, an associate editor for the Consulting Psychology Journal, and a Psychology Today blog she writes and focused, all of these focused on women's leadership. Please welcome the founder and CEO of Brunku Associates, Dr. Mira Brunku. Hi, Mira. Hi. Nice to have some time to talk with you today. Well, I'm, I'm excited. pretty excited. You know, you got a lot going on with mm-hmm. all of this. I'm interested, though, uh, being a veteran, if we if we can, just take a minute. Yeah. How did you get into working with veterans and veteran affairs? That part kind of fascinates me. Yeah. It was just an opportunity. I had not uh, worked with veterans before I became a psychologist, and I had an opportunity to have an internship at the Durham VA in North Carolina. And I just quickly fell in love with working with this population. I mean, they are a unique population within our our country and within the healthcare system and especially within the Department of Veterans Affairs. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a greater mission here in serving those who have served our country that feels so rewarding. And so I just stuck with it because I just really enjoyed this, this population. You know, it's interesting. I, I often ask people in this country under the constitution, what do we take an oath to when we join the military? And unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't know the answer to that. They think that we're supporting the government. They think that we're supporting the presidency. And the fact of the matter is that we raise our hand and we take an oath to the Constitution of the United States to protect and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The same exact oath that President of the United States takes 
when he or she raises their hand. Someday we will have a she and take that oath. And the interesting thing about this, and I think that we may talk about this a little bit, is if you're an immigrant and you come to this country and you become a citizen, you take that oath. The challenge we have sometimes with Americans that are born here is they don't take that oath. Mm. And a lot of them don't even know the, the, the sense of the Constitution. So I really appreciate the work that you do and the help. As we say in the military, they're not our fellow soldiers and sailors and airmen. They're our brothers and sisters. Yeah. And I appreciate that um, connection there. It's probably something that perhaps spoke to me unconsciously because I am an immigrant. I did come to this country when I was six years old where we came as refugees and we, you know, I remember my parents taking that oath mm. and watching and listening. And, you know, that was, that was really special and moving. Yeah. It's a big day, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 So let, let's let's go let's back up a little bit and talk about your past and your history and being an immigrant coming to this country. What what do you what does that do for you in terms of perspective as you look at this country and and look at it from a, a organizational leadership standpoint that you do with transition and transformation of organizations? What, you you have a different perspective than a lot of people have, and I want to hear a little bit about that. What does that what does that perspective bring to the table? Yeah, it is interesting. Because when I came to this country, obviously, I didn't have any grasp of the English language. That was not something that I just, you know, learned before. And so it took me all of elementary school to be able to pick it up. And during that time, I feel like it really planted the seeds for what I'm doing today. Uh, strangely enough, I spent a lot of time just observing people and, you know, trying to figure out not just the language, but how things worked, why they worked the way that they worked here in this country compared to, you know, where I came from, what made kids popular versus not popular, mm. why some people were successful and others were not successful. All of these things I was just very curious about. And I think that alone planted the seeds for me being interested in just the psychology of people and, and how they work together and how they communicate. And once I picked up the language, later on, when I first started my, my first career, which actually I used to be a school counselor before I was a psychologist, I remember thinking, oh, now I have a master's degree and, you know, I know everything I need to know about helping the children that I work with. And that is not just not the case. I learned that just because I had uh, picked up the foundational language of my work and the skill set of working with the clients did not mean that I would automatically be successful in my career. There was an entire ecosystem that I had no idea would be such a strong influence in my success and the success, success of the kids that I worked with. So there was the fact that the kids brought their own concerns. And then there was how I thought about how I might apply some intervention or another. But then parents had their own perspective that if I didn't know, would definitely intervene with 
you know, my success. And then there were teachers who had their perspective and administrators who had their perspective and the school district who functioned in a certain way. You could go on and on and on the layers, right, of societal influences, family influences, and all of those things would uh, affect how we work together in this one on quote, one on one discussion, right? 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 And in leadership, we call it context. I mean, we, the one word is context. context. Is everything of, is affected in an interaction between two people where if someone is trying to demonstrate some form of leadership is they have to consider all of those contextual characteristics that you're talking about. And interestingly, as you were talking about when you were a, a young child and you were still learning the English language, but you were watching the other 93% of the language, which is the body language, right? Mm-hmm. You were starting your what, what we call qualitative analysis. You were doing a qualitative research <laughs> through observation. You're looking for trends. Who's the, you know, Like you said, who are the popular kids? Who are the, who are the successful ones? Who are the smart ones? Who are the athletic ones? And you look at all that and you were actually in your mind you, of course, you didn't know it at the time, but you were doing qualitative analysis back then, <laughs> right? Yeah, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you were already practicing for your PhD and you didn't even know it. <laughs> right. Yeah. But to your point, it, it's an interesting thing. You, you get a master's and you're sitting there thinking, I'm a school counselor. I've got this skill. I've got this skill set, right? When did you realize how important context was? When did it hit you? And I'm going to guess that it was when a mistake was made, right? Absolutely. OMG. Yes. Yes. So here I am thinking all communication is straightforward. I've got a handle on this language thing. I mean, I sounded back then the way I sound now. So you'd think I got it down, right? Yeah. So what happened was the, the big mistake. I mean, there was quite a number of big mistakes, but one of them that really sticks in my mind is when I learned about some new ethical thing that I thought, oh my gosh, I need to tell my leader right now about this ethical thing that I'm not sure that we're abiding by. And I'm going to share straightforward what I think about it and where I think we're going wrong. And then this leader will automatically appreciate that I shared it and bring me in to help address it. And that was not <laughs> what happened. You didn't that get was, the thank you, Mira. I did not you get didn't. The thank oh, you. thank you so much for sharing that, Mira. We really appreciate your insights. I didn't know this was going on. No. 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 Uh, what happened? Instead, I got sat down by my supervisor, and she let me know that it was not well received, and. It was only then after we were talking that I realized that I hadn't taken into consideration anything about what my leader went through to make the decisions that she made. I hadn't been in any of the meetings. I hadn't sort of been involved in any of the decision-making process. I had just sort of made my own decision up without any of that context. Context so again. I'm going to assume you made a few assumptions. Few assumptions, yes, <laughs> that yeah. I was right and I knew everything. Of course you were, yeah. <laughs> and the thing that my supervisor said that was actually quite hurtful, but it sort of drove home the point, was, you know, I said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I want to go straight to my leader and and talk with him about this and apologize and have a talk. And she said, no, 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 no don't do that. I fixed it and it's fine. 
And I said, oh, wow, thanks. How did you fix it? And she said, well, I just told her that English was your second language and that you miss things sometimes. Wow. Now, wow. nobody knows that English is my second language when they listen to me, right? So that was something no. that yep. she had decided must have been the reason I was so clueless. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that basically stamped me as clueless and as someone who probably shouldn't be included or invited in you know decision making processes because obviously i missed things and that was incredibly hurtful so the question the question is in that moment though was how did that feel and then i know i know you well enough already to ask the question is what did you do about it yeah yeah so yes super well, the first reaction was shock, pure shock. And then after that, betrayal, hurt, anger, you know, all the things, all the mm -hmm. emotions. Mm -hmm. And did you ever feel like any level eventually of like disappointment or in your on yourself for not picking yeah. this stuff? So yeah. eventually I said to myself, you know what? I'm clearly not cut out for hierarchical, bureaucratic, large systems. And that's, I just, it's clear that, that, that is not my place. Well, that's, now that's a leap, isn't it? One thing happens in your life and you create a, a leap that says, oh, I, I just need to avoid this the rest of my life. That's right. right. That must be the problem that, that, <laughs> that I stuck in all the ways. Yeah. That, I think that happens a lot to people where they have a sig a significant emotional event and, and they, I call it catastrophize it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah. you're trying to figure out like, what what could I do to never have this experience again? Yeah, never go through this pain again. Right, yeah. and not make so much, you know, not make such a painful mistake. Yes, you know. Okay, so what so, did you do? Yeah, funny enough, I went back to school, um, and the clinical psychology degree was a way to also, you know give me an opportunity to have a degree that was much more flexible. So it, if I didn't like one job, I could switch and switch and switch and switch with a much more flexible degree, just in case. Because in this, you know, with school counseling, you really can't switch, you know? And so that was the first sort of decision. Like, let me, let me in my next degree, you know, not box myself in. The, the second was somehow, somehow, I ended up in what is arguably one of the largest, most bureaucratic hierarchical systems in the U.S. And I thought, how did I end up here after what I told myself I would never do? But there was a reason for that. And I feel like there was a real difference. And it was this feeling that, number one, the, the people who hired me were really committed to mentoring um, I asked a lot of those questions around that and that, that ended up being the case. So in this new role that I was in, I found a mentor in the director of our research center and he saw things in me that I really did not see in myself in terms of leadership potential and kind of took it upon himself to, to mentor me. And the mentorship really catapulted my leadership career 
And a lot of it had to do with the culture, the unspoken rules, the politics, the understanding the multi-layered system that I was in so that I could make better decisions and utilize the resources around me that I was sort of ignoring up until that point. Yeah, I want to I want to take a, just a, a second here about your psychology PhD because there's a big difference between a, a clinical psychology degree and just a psychology degree. Yes. And one of my mentors, one of my great mentors, Dr. Marshall Swift, who was my mentor, had a clinical psychology degree and wanted me to become a clinical psychologist back in the in the 90s. But uh, I couldn't take five years off with a family and everything and do that full time. But I learned a lot from him. And like you said, the flexibility of a clinical psychology degree, which is a lot more practical than just pure research with a PhD or psychology. Can you explain the difference a little bit for our listeners so that they really know and understand? Because you kind of alluded to the flexibility of this degree a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate that. There are not a lot of people that actually realize that there's probably about 50 subdomains of psychology. My husband is an educational psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. There's cognitive psych- there's there's lots of different types. So the clinical psychologists can do research. They could also obviously get, you know, go down the leadership path, which is what we talked about, and organizational path, which we will talk about. But they're also healthcare providers on top of that. So they mm-hmm. learn a wide variety of interventions to help people with mental health conditions. So they're, they specialize in mental health conditions, which not all psychologists do, and how to provide evidence-based care and how to design treatments that are appropriate for different types of mental health conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, for explaining that. A lot of people don't understand the difference. It's To me, there's a parallel to that with my, I have a doctorate in business administration. It's not a PhD. It's an equivalent, but it's like an MBA on steroids and you get a broad base of understanding of business. And I took extra courses in in finance and other things, but my my primary focus area was in marketing because I have a mechanical engineering degree and an MBA, and I want to do something completely different and get a much more holistic view of business on a, a research level. So uh, people need to understand the differences in some of these degrees because mm-hmm. what you do, in, and I, I kind of think of a lot of clinical psychologists as really being a lot more practical-minded. You know, oh, Interesting. You Say know, more. Just, well, well I, I think that you, you're you get in the trenches and you work with people and, you know, it's not researching mental illness or something. Mm. It's helping somebody with their mental illness, you know, with their mm-hmm. challenges and trying to figure out. I can remember Marshall saying to me, you know, when you're under stress, you need to have seven coping strategies. If you don't have seven, then you don't have enough to kind of fall back on and you get to like one or two and then you're up against the wall and you feel like you don't have any other options. So bad things happen. He says, we need to develop seven, you know, and having things like that, I think are very powerful for leaders as they think about going through their lives. And I, some of the work I, that stuck with me, you know, it stuck with me for over 30 years and I'll, I'll do some coaching. I'm like, what are your coping strategies? How do you deal mm-hmm. with stress? And I can remember those, those words uh, for Marshall as I sh- I'm sure you can, when you talk about your mentor, how mentors draw out the things in us sometimes that we don't even know are in us. Yes, yes. You know, can Absolutely. you talk a little bit about your mentor and and how what the, what did that do for you? I mean, tre- tremendous. You know, I I had gone in to you know this new career already, sort of feeling beaten down and mm. lower confidence. I mean, I was I was confident in in terms of 
you know, my psychology degree, but I was not necessarily confident in sort of navigating a large workplace again, right? Context context and history. And so I just, I thought that everything that I did was just sort of like normal and not a big deal and not important and not like all that unique, right? I just, I was a hard worker and I somehow magically landed up, you know, in this role. That's, that's basically my, my mindset at that point. And it, it took this mentor saying, I think you have the raw materials for this. I see this in you. You know, he would say things like, I think you're really brave. And I would say, what? Why? <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't see that in myself. Right. And, uh, there was, there was a moment where very early in my career, I was sort of in the situation where there was another center that was facing a really extraordinarily difficult, tumultuous time. People were feeling unsafe. They were calling it a toxic, uh, toxic or hostile work environment, it was it was an awful situation for the the people there and nobody either wanted to or w- were available to go help and serve as an interim director of this center at that time um, because they were much more senior and they had many other responsibilities and they really wanted an external person and my mentor said i think you could do this and i said are you crazy <laughs> <laughs> And I quote, are you crazy? Are you you out of your mind? I'm not appropriate for this. And he said, no, I think you have the raw materials. Would you mind me putting your name forward for it? He advocated for me. There were plenty of people that said, she's too early in her career. We don't have faith in her. She shouldn't be put in this situation. And he kept saying, I've seen her work. I know she can. And, and she would do a good job. And that really, not just saying yes and agreeing to do it, but then allowing myself to be in a very challenging situation that pushed me to serve in a leadership role in a, you know, really kind of scary, um, stressful situation really pushed my leadership forward and helped me get that confidence because I was basically forced to realize just how much I actually could do and and realize my potential. You and I had talked a little bit about potential before we started actually, you know, recording today, but it helped me really realize what my potential actually could be. And until that point, I, I didn't realize it. And what also helped was that he said, when you do this, I will still be there supporting you from afar, mentoring you, and we'll create a support system so that we can help. And that was huge. That meant everything, right? Everything. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back to a couple of things because first of all, I want to point out that the psychological, and I here I am talking to a psychologist, right? But the mm-hmm. psychological social aspects of exactly what you're saying with women in leadership opportunities is what they've said that a lot of women won't take that leap until they're completely ready, comfortable, and, mm-hmm. and uh, feel like, because they don't want to fail. They don't, you know, they, you've already got a tough enough row to hoe, as the saying goes. Men will take the, the risk. They'll jump into it. They'll they, they'll take more risk with it. And I don't, 
I'm not going to go into the psychology and the risk of it because I have no clue. But maybe you can talk about that because I think that what you said could be a formula for a lot of women leaders. And I know you do work with women leaders now, and we can kind of weave that into this that says, look, you you do have the capability. Let's take a look at this and find out what you need in terms of support and confidence to make that happen. You know, the first thing you need is a mentor. You need a mentor. You need somebody that's got your back. Mm-hmm. You know, we said this in the military, IGYB. I bring this into companies all the time. I've got your back. If we've got each other's back more, oh, we're willing to try more things. Because if you stumble a little bit and somebody's there to catch you, you don't fail. You just stumble. And you're not going to fall flat on your face and everybody's laughing at you and it's a horrible thing. No, you stumble and you go, I stumbled and uh, thanks for catching me and let's move on. But have have you... You just described what seems to be a social norm in our country today where women aren't stepping up and taking the risk a lot of times because they're, they're afraid or whatever the reason is. You overcame that with your mentor. Yeah. And, and so we've been using the word mentor up until this point, but I'm going to add a new word, which is sponsor. He did not just mentor me. He sponsored me along the way. And the difference here is that women actually sometimes, you know, are over-mentored in all the wrong ways and under-sponsored. And what he did was he mentored me in the right ways, but also sponsored me for opportunities where he said, I think she could do it. I will vouch for her using my social capital. And then I will put her in that position so that she can demonstrate her skill set so others can see it. Well, that's a great delineation because the sponsor has to be somebody within the organization. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody with enough enough power within that organization to make a difference. A mentor can be outside the organization or not. It doesn't matter. But having yeah. both within the organization, obviously, is extremely powerful. And um, I, and I know you're presently doing some work with women, and I'm going to assume that this experience that you had gives you the opportunity to tell people, look, this is how to deal with this. This is how to go about an opportunity for the for future promotion, future opportunities by building your network of sponsors and mentors. Yes. I mean, it is a multi-pronged approach. So the things that you mentioned already are number one, just sort of trying to get through the gender biases that already exist and acknowledge they're there. And let's not pretend that they're not there. And let's also not sort of put it on women to somehow work through that. And and one of those is um, this sort of double bind or some some people have called it like the narrow band of acceptable behavior um, that women can only be a certain way. Uh, you know, societal norms say we are nurturing and caring and compassionate. And so either we're nurturing compassionate, caring, and therefore we don't have leadership skills, or we're assertive and risk-taking and are seen as pushy and (laughs) off-putting. And somehow trying to figure out like, how am I supposed to behave if I can't be one and I can't be the other? And I put, you know, into this sort of double bind of trying to navigate that. So half of it is trying to figure out how to identify the biases that are already there and navigate them. And the other half is 
trying to involve higher level leaders to see how they can support women in sort of getting past those those gender biases that, you know, I mean, we all have them. It's not just men. I mean, it's a, it's sort of a societal, this is how we're, we're, um, raised to, to believe certain things and we have to sort of, um, push ourselves past that. One thing that you mentioned though, that, that I wanted to sort of speak to that is so, so complicated is this issue of confidence. I mentioned it, right? I didn't have confidence because of what happened before and I needed to gain confidence. But what drives me crazy is when there are sort of leadership programs that want to fix women's confidence or want to fix our quote unquote imposter syndrome as if it's like our thing that we somehow came up with. Which drives me absolutely crazy. Um, well, men have it just as much, the, especially the imposter syndrome. Yeah. Is men have it just as much. They just hide it better sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is for men and women much better to, um, instead of setting up leadership programs to highlight everything we need to fix as if we're we can be all things to all people, to instead think about, you know, who am I? What is the best person I can be? What are my strengths? What do I bring to the table? And how can then I develop and and grow a team that I mentor and get the mentorship above me from other people where we're all leveraging each other's strengths in a way that is much more powerful than what you know one individual can do by themselves? You know... <laughs> So in three sentences, you just told everybody about my book, The Seven Steps of Intentional <laughs> Leadership, right? Uh, inside Love Out it. Development of Leadership, which is the first step of purpose, is writing a personal mission statement. Second step of choice is having emotional intelligence. Third step is strengths, focusing on strengths. And then you start working on the yes. team. Yes. Okay? Yes. It's, it's an inter- inside-out journey. So, you know, to your point, and we were talking about this a little bit in that inside-out journey, the challenge that many of us have in that inside-out journey when you first of all, I want to make a comment about bias. Is the first step in bias is becoming aware of it. A bias is just an assumption. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just an assumption that we need to recognize and see that it is. But it becomes a bias when it discriminates against people in whatever that bias is because of some made-up thing in my head. Right? By becoming aware of that bias or that prejudice, we can then ask the question: Is this true? Is Because like to your point, psychologically, our brain does all kinds of things to fill in yes. the blanks. Whether you want to or not, it's going to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Some good, some bad, some accurate, some inaccurate. But becoming aware, our, our leadership program is all about awareness. That awareness, when we start, is focused on one word. And you and I talked about this earlier. It's called discomfort. Mm-hmm. It's the discomfort of awareness that a bias that I have might be wrong. It's the discomfort of the awareness that I have the imposter syndrome. It's the discomfort of the awareness that I might not be as good as I think I am, Mm -hmm. that, you know, these things that I'm doing and in, in the work that we do with a growth mindset and the work that we do with personal development, there's a constant expectation for me personally. And you and I talked about this. We both have the same value, right? Of being comfortable with the discomfort. Yes, so when you're working with, with women, when you're working with organizations, when you're working with other leaders, and, and I'm going to guess, 
that based on everything that you've talked about from psychology to context, that you've found some better ways now to work through the process of this awareness and discomfort with leaders so that they can be more effective. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So first, just to sort of reiterate that we all have biases and another word for bias is perspective. We all bring our lens to the world that we think is accurate and we think other people see it exactly the same way as we do. Not true. Well, up until we're about 28 and then we're like, (laughs) oh my God, people think differently than me. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Right. Hopefully, right? Hopefully. Hopefully, But you know, it it does persist. It does persist. It, It is the root of the large majority of communication problems I see on teams is that we make assumptions that other people understand exactly what we're talking about and that it's clear and obvious to everybody else. So one of the things that we, you know, start with is let's take an assessment um, or two. And I, I strongly believe that, you know, the more assessments that you could take throughout your life about like understanding yourself and revealing those blind spots that we have about how we perceive the world and our our approach to work and our preferences. Um, And then think about the teams around us, the the people on our teams and how they might approach things in a very different way and they might value things in different ways. That alone is so, so powerful. I can't tell you how many times um, I work with leaders and then I work with teams that say, oh my God, I had no idea that I was bringing this and that you were bringing that. And then the other is just to work on expanding perspective, just continuing to expand our perspective. When I work with leaders, I often say, did you, you know, did you look into that? Do you, do you have all the information? Is there anything that you're missing? And the more I ask, the more they realize, oh, I haven't asked so-and-so or, oh, I didn't look into that yet. Let me, let me look into that. And when they do, it helps them make more strategic decisions, more intentional and less sort of reactive or conflictual, you know. My, myopic is the word I like. Yeah. yeah. You know, they have a right. single point of perspective and they think that they're right and that's it. Right. And, And all of us do it. So the problem then becomes, do they listen? You know, do they listen to the other perspectives? And that's a whole other issue that we could talk about, right? Right, right. But it's fascinating to me, Mira, how you've gone from this, through this process where you were afraid to be involved and understand the complexity of context because of a single incident to now by focusing on that for, for years, getting a degree, opening up your mind, being a leader in an organization and just working through a lot of that discomfort because of the the help of a sponsor and a mentor that has gotten you to this point today. It's like, no, I'm not going to let a, a single incident in my life define who I am. Yeah. And, you know, that has also helped me realize just how important it is for me to share that more broadly with other people. Like it really helped me commit to this new path for myself, which is to have a ripple effect, create, you know, more opportunities for more people to have access to this information that I felt so, so rarely happens for people and especially for women. 
and to share it as, as much as I can, as broadly as I can. So, you know, through my book, um, Millennials Guide to Workplace Politics, that was one way, but through mentorship, through the leadership programs, through volunteer work, whatever I can do to try to provide what I felt was so special that I received and share it with others. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what you get to do every day, right? I know. Yeah. That's and right. you too. I yeah, me like. too. Yeah. I, we just finished up a leadership program yesterday with 12 people that went through a nine month program. And we always finish the program by telling them that we're just getting started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the beginning with all the awareness. So I want to wrap up today. And I, you know, I really think that we're going to have an opportunity to do this again, because you and I could talk for hours and <laughs> hours and, and really enjoy it. Yeah. But I want to wrap up with the question I always end my podcast with, and, and that is, uh, Dr. Mira, if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to you 20, 25 years ago, what would you tell yourself? Hmm. Mm, you put me on the spot now. <laughs> oh yeah. That's the idea. I I would tell myself that you have no idea the great journey that you're on and that simply your persistence and curiosity will get you really far. Mm, yeah. And 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 listen to your mentor. <laughs> listen to your mentor yeah but, you know some people a mentor shows up and they say you could be great oh don't no, no 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 you know yeah they, yeah actually what a funny story about that is early on before I listened to my mentor he would give me these you know opportunities and I would say listen listen I just want to be clear with you that I'm not interested in a career I just want a job I've got other things to do you know, and I was just trying to protect myself from disappointment, but he just persisted. He's like, mm, I think you want a challenge. I'm just going to keep challenging you and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness he didn't listen to me and my stubborn self. <laughs> well, he, he sounds like quite a, quite a mentor. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I think that I th- I've got to think about this. I try to come up with a uh, title for the podcast based on our conversations and, and what, what I came up with so far as I, as I think about this is believe in yourself and lean into the discomfort. I like that. You know, it's kind of what I've, what I've heard today. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. So that's where we're going to go with it. Dr. Mira Branku, thank you so much. And I, I have a feeling I'm going to say this right here. I'm going to, on a recording, I have a feeling that we'll be doing this again. I Thanks so much for that. your thoughts and ideas and, and really appreciate your wisdom today. It was super fun. Great to talk with you. Thanks. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com.